Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, I am very excited, and I will tell you right now that I was not the person who created this, but for all of you Alexa users out there, um, we've just introduced a College Coach Flash Briefing, Alexa skill. Okay, I don't have an Alexa, but this sounds really cool to keep you updated with exactly what you need to know about college admissions and college finance, exactly when you need to know it. So all you have to do is enable the College Coach Flash Briefing Alexa skill using the Alexa app on your phone or computer. And when you say, Alexa, read my flash briefings, you'll get the daily, the quick daily update on the world of applying to and paying for college from uh, college coaches expert. So kind of cool. Obviously, we this will not replace your need to tune in every week to the podcast, but um, kind of a cool new thing that we are introducing here. We have a lot to get to today, including financial considerations of study abroad and tools for discovering and exploring interests. I know this is a question we get a lot from parents, but also from students. So we're going to talk through some tools that you can use for that. But in our first segment, we're going to look more closely at business majors, which seem to me anyway to be rising in greater, greater um, prominence. I have a lot of students interested in majoring in business, and I think some appropriately so. And sometimes I wonder um, with others if it really is the best choice. Um, but Judith Hodera, who's a former admissions officer at Penn, she did undergraduate admissions there, and she also was an admissions officer for Wharton's MBA program. Uh, And she currently works with students applying to MBA programs uh, through her company, Fortuna, uh, who happened to be a trusted partner of ours. Good morning, Judith. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, Well, we're excited to have you back. You've been here before. And um, I do think this is uh, something that a lot of students are considering, a bus- namely a business major, but I don't often find them asking many questions about it. It's just sort of like, oh yeah, I'm going to major in business. But I, I right. sometimes feel like it hasn't been a particularly well considered choice just beyond, I think I want to be in business, so I'm going to major in business. And um, so I think my first question for you is, what exactly is covered in a typical undergraduate business major degree or slash degree? It's a great question, and thank you for for bringing it up. You know, business undergrad degrees are mostly business, but then there's also quite a bit of liberal arts requirement as well. So just this should not come as a surprise to anyone thinking about business. Most likely, you're going to be taking accounting. You're going to be taking some kind of business law class or government relations. You're going to need statistics. You're going to have a class in financial management. You'll have a foundation in marketing. You'll have management and organizational behavior. You'll have an analytical class. Um, sometimes that's called management science. You'll have a class in operations. A lot of programs are bringing in social responsibility. And then you'll have a class in strategic management. That's on the business side of things. In addition, you're going to, without a doubt, have requirements in calculus, 
macro and microeconomics, and not surprisingly, a number of liberal arts writing intensive courses that are going to really help you become a better business person and a better business leader. So there's usually some combination of very foundational business requirements, a liberal arts addition, which could go up to even 10 or 12 courses in the liberal arts. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to have some electives along the way as well. Um, This, of course, is going to vary from school to school. And I've looked in a number of different business programs from state schools to Wharton to Georgetown McDonough, just kind of getting a sense of what it is that's going to be required. And pretty much, you know, most schools are going to have a fairly intensive business fundamental requirement. They're going to have leadership requirements. And then you're also going to be able to really take some additional classes in the liberal arts. Um, Of course, today's environment being as it is, there's lots of different ways to combine this with other majors. So, uh, you know, not surprisingly, you may also be able to take classes outside of the School of Business that complement your business skill set as well. Um, but typically, be prepared. If you're applying for an undergraduate business program, you're going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting in things like accounting, finance, management, marketing, and operations. Right. And if that's not interesting... Mm. Or if you don't love math, (laughs) also something to think about. But I'm jumping ahead because my next question really is, when you think about that sort of curriculum, and and, um, you and I both used to read files for Penn as undergraduate admissions officers and certainly see plenty of applicants to Wharton because at Penn you choose one of the four schools. Um, but but what and in that I I would certainly be looking for you know why does this student want business and and what is driving them uh, to want that to focus on that in their undergraduate career. But um, now that we're on the other side of things, in your opinion, what kinds of students are most appropriate for a business degree? I think that. There are students that are very focused on specific things they want to do or certain things they, you know, they imagine them for themselves professionally pursuing. So I know I want to be an accountant. I know I'm really interested in something like operations. I know I'm really interested in marketing. I'm really curious about the psychology of how people decide to go into a store and buy something. And I want to work for a company that sells toothpaste, for example. There are certainly a lot of students out there that, that come in with a very, very strong, specific goal of what they want to learn and what they imagine their professional futures to be. There are a lot of students that are interested in the way that the world works on a larger scale and are thinking about bigger issues. So they may be curious about world markets or interested in how banking um, you know, impacts the, the ways that we interact together as countries, as nations. Um, there are certainly, so, so that's like a really different perspective. It's a little bit more global in, in, and maybe perhaps more theoretical in its approach. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are students that have had an entrepreneurial streak since they were in high school and they've made and sold and created and dreamed up and produced. And that's certainly, uh, you know, another category of, of folks that are, that are applying to undergraduate business programs. So there's not one unifying background that I think makes you, quote, a great candidate for a business school. But it is clear that you have to recognize that it's a majority of what you're going to be studying is really going to be, as you mentioned, that's A, quantitatively based, Mm -hmm. and B, does not allow you 
as much diversity in your education as perhaps you might be seeking from your undergraduate degree. So there are going to be restrictions and foundational courses that are required. Um, and so for some people that may mean, hey, you know, I really am interested in that stuff, but I want to do that in addition to a liberal arts major, which is going to allow me to study, you know, a, a wider variety of topics. Um, one thing is for sure, though, that coming into an undergrad program, you really need to show that you have the quantitative chops. So that's either a very, very strong undergraduate, excuse me, high school program showing Mm -hmm. that you've taken and had exposure to quantitative courses and done well in them. And then on your standardized testing that you're able to show that ability as well, because that is really going to be a fundamental piece of your first year of an undergraduate business program. Yeah, I mean, and certainly when I was reviewing files, that was something I turned to and looked at very closely because I knew that in committee, one of the questions was going to be, well, how strong a math student is is this? And what is the coursework that the student's already done? And looking probably a little bit more closely at um, those math scores on standardized tests than right. perhaps we might have at the others, although it was all pretty important. Um, and so beyond the obvious, which is if you're not a strong right. math student, a business program may not be for you. Are there any other students for whom you would say maybe this isn't the best next step for you? So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to say an answer to that question because I, I do think that business programs used to be a lot more prescriptive. There wasn't a lot of wiggle room. There wasn't a lot of diversity, but if, meaning that like you did business and, and these were the core courses. And then if you, you know, wanted to go deeper, you could, but you really couldn't stray too far out the line. But mm-hmm. now if you look at these programs that are being offered, there's business and technology, there's business and international studies, there's business and um, undergraduate, you know, healthcare interests. So the opportunities have broadened quite a bit. I think, though, the fundamental question that students and families could ask themselves are, even if my student has interest in these other areas, are they going to want to come back to the business piece as their fundamental? Um, and that, to me, is, is really a great way to approach it. You know, you want your home, your home base is going to be this business program, regardless mm-hmm. of the other things that you're interested in. So... Um, if you're, you know, thinking about leadership and you're, you're, you're sort of thinking about other ways that you want to impact your education, um, the only way that I would, uh, quote, advise against it is to really do a gut check and say, at the end of the day, you're going to be in school with business students. So is that who you want to be in school with? Is that what you're going to be learning? Is that what you want, you know, you're going to be excited about it, you know, as you're mm-hmm. studying at midnight, um, a couple of nights a week? And, and to me... It's, it's that home base that really has to sit well with you. If it's not, but there are aspects of a business program that appeal to you, there are so many different ways in today's educational environment to be able to get some of that. And <clears throat> that may be, and I, we can certainly talk about that, that you end up getting an MBA or you get another kind of degree in business if you find that you are not ready quite to commit to it on an undergrad level. Right, right. And, you know, I'm feeling a little at this stage in my work with students applying to undergraduate programs. For me, it seems almost like business is becoming a bit of a catch-all. So it's, Uh and, uh you know, I I don't really, 
I need to articulate that a little bit better, but it's sort of like, well, I kind of like math, but mostly I know I want to be in business, so I'm going to apply to business. And for for some of those students, I'm, I'm really encouraging them to take a closer look at what does that really mean? Like you say, you know, what is the coursework you're going to actually be doing and who are the people that you're going to be doing it with? And is that really what you want to do? Um, because I think it's more of an easy choice for many students and that doesn't necessarily make it the right choice. Um, because I think it's an easy choice because it seems to make sense. Well, I know I want to work in business and therefore I'm going to go and get my business degree and, um, you know, but that isn't necessarily, I don't think the two have to be linked, which leads to my next question, um, from someone to someone like yourself who not only currently helps students applying to MBA programs, but also as one who used to read files for MBA programs um, and presumably saw plenty of students who maybe didn't major in business, but um, worked in business. Do you need to major in business to have a career in that in business? So believe it or not, you really don't. I'm going to give you just, here's a snapshot. The incoming class for Wharton, which is where I have, you know, the most experience, the incoming class for last year, 25% of them were undergraduate business majors. 45% of them were coming from the humanities and then another 30% from um, STEM. So that's just a snapshot. That's a, probably a pretty good snapshot across most of the M7 business programs. So when I was at Wharton reading applications there were certainly individuals that had come straight through undergrad programs in business. They were very well prepared. They had gone on and worked, let's say, in banking or consulting for two or three years, perhaps private equity, and then decided to go to business school. Totally understood their profile, very much aware of what it was that they had done to get to the business school readiness. Mm-hmm. And then we had biology majors, and we had people that had majored in philosophy, and we had individuals that had worked um, doing advertising and for nonprofits. Uh, we had folks that had been teachers, and we had folks that had, you know, worked for city governments. So there was this real understanding that there's a million different ways to ap- to eventually apply to business school. And you do, do not need to have majored in an undergrad business program in order to go on for an MBA. Um, and in fact, just, you know, thinking about those statistics in particular, that's pretty telling um, that schools are looking for a diversity of thought. They don't necessarily expect that everyone will have come through the same undergraduate foundational program. And that's really the beauty of going to graduate school when you're, when you're 25, 26, 28 years old and, and being in class with individuals that are coming to the topic from a little bit of a different perspective. Well, and the fact is that if, that you described that 25% that you described, I do sometimes feel like that's what people think of when they think of business. I mean, business is not just banking mm-hmm. and finance, right? Business is everywhere. You're running a nonprofit. Right. That's a business. It might be a nonprofit business, but it's still a business. Um, you know, there are any number of areas and functions in a lot of different um, professions that would really benefit from business skills. And um, yeah, so that to me makes total sense that actually a large number of people applying for an MBA would not have majored in business as an undergrad. And 
that actually leads me right to my last question for you, which is okay. if you get your business degree as an undergrad, one, you know, one of the things sometimes that I will have a student say is, well, I don't really want to do graduate school. So I'm going to study business as an undergrad. Mm-hmm. What's your take mm-hmm. on, do, do you think it prepares you as studying it as an undergrad so that ultimately you don't need your MBA? I feel like studying business on an undergrad level, you get an experience between the ages of 18 and 22 that is um, very intensive academically. It's very intensive personally. You're growing your character. You're growing your skill set. You're growing your leadership skills. You then go out and work for X number of years. I really think that going back to school when you've had some professional business experience when you've matured as an individual, when you've had exposure to different kinds of environments, not just academic, you might be ready to open up your mind to different ways of management, different ways of leadership, different ways of problem solving, which when you were 18, 19, and 20 didn't necessarily occur to you. Mm-hmm. So I understand that some students feel like, oh, I got the fundamentals. I don't need to take accounting. Okay. You probably don't need to take accounting in business school, but you're going to need to learn how to negotiate. You're going to learn to need how to, to you know, get along with people that you have absolutely nothing in common with on opposite sides of the table. You might need to understand top to bottom how an entire business works and not just your one function. So really thinking about business school, it, I joked a couple of years ago, and I hope somebody takes me up on it, that it really should be called leadership school. Because that's what business school is all about. It's, it's not necessarily like learning how to do valuations, which, of course, is important. But it, it's really all these other skills that are developed in this very, very robust environment of folks coming in with incredible backgrounds, exposure, diversity of thought, culture, uh, nationality, everything you can imagine and bringing that to bear in the classroom. So those conversations are, are just, by, by their very nature, more expansive than they would be when you were earlier in your academic career. Um, so I think, I, or I know, I do think that graduate school can be really uh, expansive in, in helping you to attain the next personal and professional steps in your development. And I don't think that you need an undergraduate degree in that area in order to be successful. Um, so I, I, it's, it's a funny thing because I don't think the MBA is for everybody, mm-hmm. but I think that if you're interested in this particular kind of growth, then it's a great fit for, for those individuals that have had an interest in the area and, and want to continue down that path um, a little bit later in their careers. Judith, this has been super helpful, and hopefully our listeners are have been taking notes. Um, to anyone who is actually in the a place where they are thinking that they might want to do an MBA, or maybe you have an older sibling that is thinking about that, um, if you'd like to learn more about Judith and what her team does, uh, you can check them out. They're at fortunaadmissions.com. And like Judith, all of her colleagues are former um, MBA admissions officers. So they bring the same insight that our team brings to the undergraduate experience. Uh, Judith, again, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, I look forward to tuning in. And I'll talk to you soon, Beth. Thanks again. All right, we're going to be back in a minute to talk through the financial considerations of study abroad, so don't go away.
If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Our next segment is addressing something that people I don't think think a lot about when they think about studying abroad. So it's very exciting to think about spending a semester in Paris, which I was lucky enough to do when I was in college, or go to some other really interesting location, practice your language skills, just live somewhere other than the United States. But there are financial implications to that. And joining me today is Beth Feinberg Keenan, my colleague here at College Coach, and also a former financial aid officer at both Northeastern and Leslie. Uh, Welcome, Beth. Thanks, Beth. Thanks for having me, Jay. Absolutely. So I think a big question, obviously, if you if money is no object and you're not worried about paying for college, you're probably not worried about the financial implications of study abroad. But for everybody else, which I think is most people, um, I think my first big question is, will they be able to use their financial aid for their study abroad program? And it really depends, Beth. Uh, so I think back to when I was at Northeastern University specifically, and we had a study abroad office. So if students had decided that they were actually going to uh, go overseas and enroll in a program that was uh, sponsored by Northeastern University, it was a pretty smooth process. Uh, we were their home institution. We would take care of uh, billing the student as if they were actually studying at Northeastern University for that semester, for that term. And we applied their financial aid to their bill as if they were at, you know, at Northeastern for that term. So very, very smooth. But we also had summer programs. Um, there might be programs that students want to attend that aren't sponsored by uh, their institution, or maybe they're going to a school that actually doesn't have their own study abroad program, and they're looking at outside organizations. In that situation, there are actually going to be some additional steps that they need to take. Uh, the first major step is having a conversation with their academic advisor, setting up a consortium agreement. So you might be asking, well, what's a consortium agreement? And a consortium agreement is an agreement between the school they're attending, so whichever institution they're attending at that time, and the host institution where they're going to be going through the abroad program. 
uh, the academic advisor is going to want to get an idea of what classes they're going to be taking during that time because it's also important to think about if you're going to be spending a semester somewhere and you're going to be taking all these college credits, assume that you want them transferred back to where you're attending and also being applied towards your degree. So that's the first piece. And then secondly is making sure that you're making a trip to the financial aid office and looking to see what type of financial aid requirements are part of that agreement, part of that consortium agreement. I know that when I actually was at Northeastern University, we allowed students to take their loans. Uh, We processed the loans that they had, the federal loans, private loans, parent loans for that term, but we didn't allow them to take their institutional money. So if they were going to another program and wasn't hosted by Northeastern University, then we weren't going to allow them to take their grants, their scholarships to pay another institution. But that might not be the scenario for every single school, so it's important that they understand realistically what money can they take with them and what are they likely going to have to finance or cover on their own out of their own pocket. Right, and that can, of course... Uh, help you determine if really you should just go to a a program that is part of your institution or is it because is it really worth it and can you afford to do a program that is not affiliated but like you say that's going to be different from school to school you mentioned um, summer doing a study abroad during the summer which is interesting because of course during the summer you are typically not in school can you get aid um, for a summer program? Well, typically, if the students attended school already in the fall and spring semester or they've already attended for that academic year, it's likely that they've actually used up their financial aid uh, for that academic year. Uh, you know, stopping into the financial aid office is definitely a trip that you want to make sure that you're making before you make, you know, before you make that decision in terms of, like, can I get financial aid or can I not get financial aid? Uh, some schools might have set aside money that you can actually use or students can use for summer programs. But if you don't have that option, that there is any type of institutional free money, gift aid, that you can use for that semester abroad, specifically summer, then the school's not going to prevent you from borrowing. So they will add the cost of the summer program into your total budget for the year. And then, as you said, Beth, it's just reevaluating the cost. Like, how much more is this going to cost me uh, based upon what I've already had to borrow, what I'm going to be borrowing for my, my, the rest of my education, and what is this going to look like in my total indebtedness when I graduate with my degree? Mm-hmm. The other thing that they should also think about, too, is if this isn't a program that's sponsored by their institution, they also have to think back what I just mentioned about doing the consortium agreement. Uh, many students that I have worked with and then also just talking with some of my colleagues whose, um, whose kids have gone abroad, specifically over the summer, they haven't actually gone on programs that were sponsored by their institutions. So they had to do that consortium agreement piece to making sure that their credits were going to transfer back uh, to that institution and they were going to get credit for the work that they took that they did over the summer. Right. And I, you know, just a shout out to students that this isn't necessarily something you have to wait to look into until you're enrolled in an institution. If study abroad is incredibly important to you, um, this is something that you could be uh, checking into before you even apply. So maybe you would want to add a visit to the study abroad office 
to talk through, you know, what kinds of programs do students usually do? Do you know, are they able to get financial aid to go to these programs if they're in the summer? Do you know how many students who are on financial aid study abroad and what the school's policies are towards that? And the study abroad office may not know, they may direct you to someone in financial aid, but uh, if you, if it is really important and finances are consideration, I would encourage you to add this to your early research on colleges. Um, in terms of um, housing, because that's something I think people aren't always thinking about, is that um, part of the cost of the program? And and I, this probably leads to larger issues too, right, about how colleges put together financial aid and how they assess the cost of housing in, um, you know, living on campus, living off campus. But curious what your experiences have been in terms of whether housing is part of the program. In my experiences, the programs that we worked with, housing was actually included for most of the programs, but I knew that there are actually a handful of programs where housing was not included. But if housing is included, as again, speaking with one of my colleagues, and her son actually went on a program where dorm room was included, but utilities and meal plan was not included. So they had to make sure that he had resources for buying groceries and also resources to pay in utilities. If it's not included because I mentioned that there are some school, some programs where students are going to live in nearby apartments. Uh, they might live in, you know, housing, you know, in the area. Students are going to want to make sure that they want to figure out, like, what does housing look like in the area? What is, how do I go about finding housing? What's the cost of housing in that area? Um, it's some important things to consider because if they're not going to be living in a school-sponsored dorm, and they're really going to be living independently in a new country, and these are all new things for them, and there's going to be a cost, you know, cost to that, and how do they budget their money and making sure that they're, you know, they're paying rent uh, to this apartment if they're going to be living in an apartment setting uh, and, you know, commuting, you know, commuting to school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but and that can add up, right? It definitely can add up. And, you know, schools are going to build in a certain amount of money for for housing. And if housing is not covered and your, allow, your budget doesn't allow for where you found housing, then it's important that you're working with your, with your school to make sure that, you're, that you have the resources and the, that you can actually borrow or potentially get more financial assistance to cover those housing costs that you're going to be incurring during your semester abroad. Got it. And one other additional cost you're going to occur, assuming, I mean, we're talking overseas, although certainly students sometimes go places like uh, Mexico, and you may not be traveling technically over a sea, maybe you go to Canada, um, but it, it is going to cost you more money to travel. Uh, and what about those costs? Are those something that you can borrow more in order to cover or find funding for typically? Yes. Um, you can. Uh, one thing that I often found when I was at Northeastern University, some of the programs actually had the travel component, so the airfare to and from where they were going to study abroad included as part of the cost of the program. So students didn't necessarily have to come up with additional money to cover that, that plane ticket. But for students who are looking to go to specifically Europe, uh, they're looking to go to the UK, one of the biggest questions that we often get that we received was, can I get financial aid to buy a URL pass? You know, I want to be able to travel within the country, and that's, that's great. I mean, 
once in a life, potentially once in a lifetime opportunity, you're there for a period of time and you want to see and absorb as much as possible. So while each school has their you know, specific cost of attendance, stop into the financial aid office. You know, see how much you know you can borrow until you hit your cost of attendance. If you have additional costs for travel, see if the school can build in those additional costs. And if you do need to borrow for those because you've already maxed out your cost of attendance, then provide supporting documentation that the school can look at and review and determine if they can bump that up, therefore allowing you to, you know, take advantage of, you know, maybe additional travel costs and, you know, quote-unquote personal expenses uh, when you're in, uh, when you're in that, you know, that country. So did you guys allow that? Because I would have thought they would have said, nope, sorry, that's definitely not covered. And maybe you can work a summer job to earn that money. But was that something that Northeastern would cover? We did. If the student would provide documentation uh, mm-hmm. and they had already maxed out their budget, it, we would just put it under personal expenses and having them outline you basically a breakdown of personal expenses or a breakdown of transportation, and we could, using professional judgment, we could add in additional costs to bump up their budget to allow students to borrow more money if needed. We weren't going to necessarily give them more institutional aid, but... Got it, but it let them their, borrow you know, more. It was their resources in terms of borrowing that they were ultimately going to be responsible for paying that back. But yes, it was something that we, we would do, again, as long as we had that supporting documentation because we needed to make sure we had that from the student to put into their file. Got it. Um, as a parent who may someday be sending my student uh, abroad, if he's interested in doing that, do you have suggestions on getting money to your student? It's a lot easier usually to get them money when they're here in the country, but what about when they're abroad? One of the first things that you know you think about is you want to become familiar with the area that your students could be studying in. So maybe open up a Google map and look at what banks are in the area. Uh, some of the larger banks, like maybe Chase, Bank of America, City, might have international locations that might be close to the college campus that your student's going to be attending. So checking with your local branch to see what the best way is for transferring money and making sure that they can access money at, let's say, a Bank of America or Chase in, you know, in Germany or in you know, somewhere in Brazil. But Depending on the country that your students are stu- you know, studying in, I would also check with the school to see what they recommend. Uh, one of my colleagues shared with me that they actually had to transfer money to the school, and the school used a bank to actually convert the currency for her son. And so that was in mm. Copenhagen. So it just really, you know, it just really depends. And then also, there might be other ways that they're going to be spending money, like a credit card. So if you're sending your student with a credit card, uh, you want to call that credit card company and you're going to want to make sure that they don't charge international fees because if they're making purchases on a regular basis, those international fees can really add up and make those purchases more expensive in the long run. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but that also leads to my ne- my last question, and that is really because you've just brought up something we weren't thinking about. Anything else that um, you want to make sure that you take care of before either before you depart as a student or before your student departs for their semester abroad? I think another thing that you don't often think about is you want to hear from well, you do want to hear from your kids when they're overseas, and maybe a little <laughs> bit more than emails. So maybe phone conversations that uh, you'll be able to have with them, maybe on a weekly basis or a monthly basis. So if they are going to 
you know, another country, think about the cell phone that they currently have, uh, figure out how they can make calls, how they can text you, and what that expense will be to the family. I know that this isn't necessarily study abroad, but my husband travels to China, and he's traveled there a few times a year, and we've used WhatsApp, and mm-hmm. we can install it on both of our phones, and we can text each other, we can make calls, and I f- feel that that's an easy way and a great way that some families are able to you know, communicate with their students when they're overseas. Um, other ways is you know, when you're thinking about the cell phone is maybe you're getting your child a less expensive phone uh, in that country that they can have or getting the SIM card that they can put in their current iPhone and they can use that when they're, when they're overseas. Something else that's not necessarily financial related, if you're thinking about this, is making sure that you as a parent um, know a contact in that country, maybe the program liaison. In case of emergency, you need to actually get in touch with your student and you can't reach them. But, you know, as we started talking early on, we mentioned that you can start doing this research early. So having conversations with the school study abroad office and making sure that you have a checklist, maybe some guidance of making sure that you and your student are on the same page and there's nothing that you have forgotten in addition to the things of, you know, making sure their credits transfer, the financial aid, you know, making, you know, getting money. But you want to make sure that they're going, nothing's being forgotten, and you also have a way to communicate with them once they're there. Awesome. Great advice, Beth. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Beth. Have a wonderful day. All right, you too. And when you, we are going to take a short break. And when we get back, we're going to be talking about discovering and exploring your interests. Uh, so don't go away. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. We are talking about how to discover and explore your interests. Uh, This is something that a lot of students 
uh, ask questions about it. Certainly, probably more parents ask questions about. My child doesn't seem to be interested in much. Uh, I don't know what he's going to major in in college, and we're eager to figure that out. Uh, and I sort of have, I'm slightly ambivalent about whether or not you actually need to figure out the major in advance, but that is a conversation for another day. Today, we are all about giving you tools to help figure those out. And joining me today is my colleague, who also is a former admissions officer at Reed and at Emma Willard. So that means she was also looking at applications from younger students as well as high school students, which I think gives her a little bit more insight into this piece. Um, Abigail Anderson. Hi, Abigail. Hi, Beth. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, So when we decided to do this segment, one of the things that we wanted to provide to families were some actual tools that they could use when they were looking into um, you know, whether you have a student who is interested in a million things and struggling to kind of narrow it down, whether you have a student who seems to be really rudderless and and can't define any interests, um, whether they're trying to choose a major or just trying to figure out what to get involved in in high school. Um, I think there are applications for all of these um, in the tools that we are discussing today. Um, and in advance, you sent me um, a bunch of them, and I think gave some good categories. And so we wanted to present them to our listeners, um, just in terms of you know we have books, we have assessments, and we have um, exploration. So why don't we start with um, what you've seen as some good books in this area, Abigail, um, around helping students figure these out? Yeah, and I think it's so important to echo what you said right from the start, Beth, which is that when we are talking about teens, like, this is probably going to change. I feel like the teens I work with change their ideas about what they want to do, and they grow up as quickly as the weather changes in New England. We were just talking about the crazy weather we've been having, and um, these all the resources we're talking about are definitely useful, but I think the base of the conversation is, this all might change. So we might keep coming back to these resources as parents or um, college coaches or counselors over time. But um, two of the books I really like, um, the first is Do What You Are, Discover the Perfect Career for You Through the Secrets of Personality Type by Paul Tiger or Tiger. I'm not sure the pronunciation (laughs) of his last name. Um, And the other one is what color is your parachute for teens? So lots of people might be familiar with that book, but there is a teen version and that version is written by Carol Kristen. Um, And so the first do what you are is really a step-by-step through the process of determining and verifying a personality type. So the, the author Paul Teeger walks you through discovering your personality type, and then helping an individual identify occupations that are particularly popular with that particular personality type. Um, And that book has case studies and rundowns of each personality's um, work-related strengths and weaknesses. And so it's really a personality type and then moving you into potential career ideas. Um, So that's a good one for somebody who wants like a step-by-step quiz and a bit more of a sequential process. And, the, and just other, really cool. Yeah, go ahead. 
Sorry, just uh, what I was going to say really quickly is I am very familiar with Do What You Are. Uh, and one of I would just put in um, a special plug for what I really like about it is that it isn't like, oh, you're this personality type, you should go into business. It is you're this personality type. Here are some areas of business that you could go into or the here are some areas in education that you could go into. So it isn't. I find sometimes that some resources are, oh, you're good at math. You should go into business. Well, what does that even mean? <laughs> if we think, if we listen to the first segment today, there are so many different ways you can be in business. And so what I love about Do What You Are is that it feels very nuanced and offers opportunities for whether you are a hardcore leader or very much an introvert in the background, there's still opportunities for you to work in business and they make some suggestions for what those areas might be. So- Anyway, on to what color is your parachute? No, no, totally. I think that's a great point, Beth. And I think one of the problems with this type of conversation is oftentimes it just leads to more questions and more unknown information. And so that's that's a great reason that that book in particular is such a good resource. Um, The other book I mentioned, What Color is Your Parachute? The teen version is, um, I think a lot of people are familiar with the adult book, what color, adult focused, what color is your parachute? And that one is really focused on helping people discover their own passions. We don't, we don't always love that word, but things we like to do, (laughs) um, things we're good at, (laughs) our skills, and then based on those potential college majors or even potential jobs down the road. And that book, um, just like the um, version intended for adults does use, I think a lot of people are familiar with the flower diagram from that book. If you haven't seen it, you can easily do a web search um, for the flower diagram and it's got seven petals and um, they're supposed to represent the seven different sides of you and seven ways of thinking about yourself and you are then guided through choosing which of those or all, whether all of those are important to you um, so that you can define what kind of work would match your, again, your passions, your skills, and your um, goals. So that's a good one. And I like that it's a, it's a version that's more um, uh, dedicated to teens because it also has tips and tricks for developing a career path, developing internship opportunities, interviewing tips, things like that. So definitely for someone who's kind of pre-career as opposed to in the midst of their career, which what color is your parachute is geared toward. Right. Yes. It's always great when it is more age appropriate since a lot of these are more um, adult focused. Uh, Okay. So those are two great books. Do what you are and what colors your parachute for teens. Um, Now let's talk about assessments and assessments are basically, I think what they sound like they're quizzes, right? Um, And what's cool about these is you could do them online. So you found um, a few that you thought would be really great. Why don't you, um, if you would take us through those. Yeah, and I think there's there's kind of that immediacy, too, which a lot of, um, let's be honest, high school students would like, rather than being given an entire book to read, like just mm-hmm. go online, take this quiz, might be an easier conversation for a parent to have. Um, so Rutgers University has a really great um, free quiz on their career website. It's called their Career Cluster Quiz. 
that's a tongue twister, but you can definitely just Google search Rutgers career cluster quiz. And it's a simple inventory that helps students learn about both their academic and career preferences. Um, so you read through a statement and you rate your level of interest and then there's a total score at the end of each section. Um, then another one I really like is the Princeton Review. I think we recommend that website all the time. They also have a career quiz, and it's similar to the Rutgers one, but it's um, another just short quiz, very similar, but just another option. Our team also really, really likes what is called the Holland um, Assessment or Self-Directed Search. Um, it does cost, I think, 10 bucks to take online. The other two I've mentioned are free, but if you're willing to put $10 towards this, we have used with our students for years this self-directed search, and it's another career assessment. It's another exploration tool. It's really going to take kind of the things we talked about from the two books, so your aspirations, what you like to do, and your talents, and then apply it to potential career or educational choices. The thing I like about self-directed search is there, again, like the books, there are different versions of them. So, like, Beth, you and I would take the, the it's called the standard self-directed search. It's for mm -hmm. people who are mid-career, but there's also a student version, which I think, again, is really great. It's just a little more tailored to mm -hmm. teens or young adults. Got it. And yeah, I think that's always, as we've discussed, right, that's really nice when it's more age appropriate. Um, so these, I think the books and the assessments are really there to kind of help students be thoughtful about um, where their skills lie, what might be interested, interesting to them, and kind of basically discover or have help in discovering what seems to be their best fit based on the things that they like and are good at. Um, the last two resources are really more for exploration. And I think these are super important because basically it's great if you have these ideas, but how do you then take those ideas um, or, or how, you know, these things that you know you're interested in, you've got these discoveries, I guess, for lack of a better word. Um, now you need to kind of explore them, right? So it could be great if do what you are tells you, oh, you should join this branch of business. But now you might be saying to yourself, well, I have no idea how to get there. And I think that's the key for exploration. So you've identified two really great resources um, and I'm hoping that you could share those with our listeners. Yeah. And I think the other half of this battle is, okay, you've told me that public relations might be a good field for me, but like, what is that? I mean, exactly. sometimes people people will say to me, oh, well, what does somebody in PR do? And I find myself even stumbling. So I turn to these um, two exploratory websites all the time to help me in translating the outcomes of some of these assessments in books. So um, the first one is, again, a Princeton review uh, tool and they have, it's called Career Finder. And again, you can just search, uh, using your favorite search engine, Princeton Review Career Finder, and it'll pop right up. It's an awesome website and it'll give you specific examples, um, you know, 
who who is going to be good at public relations as our example? What is a day in the life of somebody in public relations? How do you get there? Paying your dues. What education do you need? What is, what should your background be? Is that field growing or expanding and um, or not and changing? And then the thing I really like about this Princeton Review career finder search is they also talk about quality of life and so what that career might be like as at entry level at five years out and at 10 years out, which is pretty hard to describe to somebody who is 17, um, but I think they do a really great job in, in that arena as well. The other exploratory tool that I love, which I think is not the sexiest of them all, but is um, a really, really solid resource, is the Bureau of Labor Statistics Occupational Outlook Handbook. And when you go to that website, you will think you reverted back to 2002. Their website looks just really outdated, but please, like, Move beyond the the cover, and the information there is amazing. You can search by occupation groups. You can search by median pay. You can search by entry-level education, what kind of on-the-job training is required. It's a, you know, it's just such a phenomenal resource, and it's one that, again, I think that all of our colleagues really push students to check out. These are all such great resources, and I love, too, that they're all free, save the Holland, which, as you noted, is a $10 fee, which is not nothing, but at least not hugely expensive. Um, Of course, to read the books, you have to buy the books, but um, for the most part, this isn't going to require a huge outlay of money and could be incredibly valuable um, as students are going through high school and and maybe going through um, the college process. Uh, Abigail, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all of these with us. Thanks for having me, Beth. All right. Um, So thanks to Abigail and all of my guests today. Next week, Ian is hosting, and we're doing a second in our series on Kindness Matters, and we're going to talk a little bit about service work. Um, And we're also going to be doing two two segments, um, both admissions and finance related on making that last transition to college. So for those of you who are about to head off, Um, there are a lot of things for you to be thinking about um, in those final weeks before you leave for college. And that is what we are going to explore in great detail uh, in next week's podcast. Uh, If you have questions for us, send them along, gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Again, it's gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. We are, we frequently do listener Q&A segments and we could use more questions. So send them along to us. Um, If you haven't signed up for our blog, I highly recommend it. Also, you can like us on Facebook um, because there you will find that we recap our podcast. So if there are resources that we mentioned here and you're curious about how to get to them, those will be included uh, in our write-up of today's podcast. So, uh, and you can find that on our Facebook page and also in our blog. Um, And just as a reminder for that uh, Alexa skill So you want to just enable it by using the Alexa app on your phone or computer. It's the College Coach Flash Briefing Alexa skill. And then every day you can say, Alexa, read my flash briefings. And the College Coach Briefing will come up, which, I don't know, I think feels very space age and incredibly cool. And I hope all of those those of you with Alexa will sign up for it. 
Um, And don't forget, we are here every Thursday, 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.